Our passage is Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'll show us from this scripture that Christ is superior, superior to everyone, even Moses and other godly men. We pray that you'll fix our eyes on Christ and not be distracted by anyone else or anything else. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our apostle has been preaching Christ in the first chapter and in the second chapter. In the first chapter, he has emphasized the deity or divine nature of Christ. And in the second chapter, he has emphasized the humanity of Christ, the perfect humanity of Christ. Both of these natures of Christ define his true identity, his true person. Who was he? He was both deity and humanity in perfection, and these are necessary for our salvation. He establishes that because he's putting Christ above everyone else. He put Christ above all the prophets in chapter 1, and then he put Christ above all the angels in chapter two, or in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. And then in chapter 2, he is the superior and perfect man above all of us. Now he returns to the subject of Moses as one of the prophets. And the reason being that he puts Moses here and compares Christ to Moses, that Christ is above Moses, has to do with the warnings that he has been giving and that he will give in chapters 3 and 4 that relate to the person of Moses. The warnings are that we should not take our eyes off Christ. We should not fall away from Christ. We should not turn aside to follow someone else or something else and supplant Christ. Christ has to be front and center in our life all the time. Nothing else and no one else should be above Christ. He's saying this about Christ and Moses because he's about to illustrate this fact because in the wilderness, Moses was honored and, and praised by God throughout his 40 years of wilderness wandering with the people and yet the people rejected Moses. So if they rejected Moses and they died in the wilderness, they are considered unbelievers and disobedient in the wilderness, how much more if we take our eyes off Christ, who is the Son of God, over the household of God, not a servant in the household of God, but he has the honorific title of Son, the only begotten Son of God in the house of God, we should not take our eyes off him, because if we do take our eyes off him, it will be perilous for us. There's only danger and destruction that awaits us if we take our eyes off Christ. This is very important and very relevant 
for our day and for every generation because it's quite easy for us to allow things to get in the way, such as riches, such as afflictions, such as uncertainties. These are things that cloud our minds and take us off the path of following Christ. And it's also easy for us to put some person there instead of Christ, to put some person there and to subvert and pervert the true gospel of Christ. We have this tendency to like certain teachers, certain pastors, certain popular ones especially. We like them, we talk about them, we refer to them, and we exalt them in ways that we should not exalt them. We are infatuated by them when we should not be infatuated by them. We must be infatuated by Christ. We must put our full devotion and dedication on Christ and make everyone else and everything else subservient to Christ, under Christ's authority. So we should test everyone by the person of Christ and the word of Christ because he is superior. He has to teach us by the illustration of Moses. And that's what he does in our passage today. He begins in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, <coughs> holy brethren, therefore, since Christ has accomplished everything he's already explained in chapter, chapters 1 and 2, now that he has come, now that we have believed in him, he addresses us and his readers and his hearers at the time, holy brethren, holy brethren. We are now brothers in the faith. We are now adopted into the family of God. So we belong to one another. So he, he's not addressing people who don't make a profession of faith. He is ad addressing people who are considered brothers in the faith, adopted spiritual children of our Heavenly Father because we have a, as our oldest brother, Christ, who leads the way and shows us the way as our leader. We are brothers. And not only are we brothers adopted into the family of God, but he also calls us holy. We're not talking about a stray brother. We're not talking about the black sheep of the family. We're talking about holy brothers. We are called to holiness. That is why we are adopted into the family of God. We are holy and we're supposed to strive for holiness. We were, were made holy or declared righteous by justification. We put our faith in Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus' perfection was applied to us. Jesus' credit was applied to our account where we had a great debt. So what Christ accomplished, it has been declared to us, so we've been declared holy or righteous. And we're also being made holy. And in fact, in chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 14 to 17 of this letter, he says, Pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We must pursue sanctification or holiness because otherwise we will not ever see God if that is not in us, if that desire is not in us and the deeds are be being manifested, the fruit of the Spirit are not being manifested in us, we will never see God. We will not see God in terms of His favor and His blessing in heaven above. So He reminds them that this is who you are. I am calling you by this honorific term, holy Brethren, So if we are holy, what should we consider? Following The following phrase, he says, we're also partakers of a heavenly calling. We are partakers. We have partaken. We have 
imbibed some of this heavenly calling because we have been grafted into Christ. We have been drawn into Christ. We now belong to Christ, and this calling into Christ is not a general call. It's not merely somebody inviting you to believe. It includes that, but it's not only that. It is, that is not specifically what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about the heavenly calling. Many people hear the word of God. Many times, as Jesus described in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, many times the preacher will scatter the word of God and many people will hear it, but not everyone who hears it actually believes it. That is, that is called the external call or the, the general call. It is a call to everyone to consider the claims of Christ. But some of the people who hear truly believe. And those who truly believe are those who have truly partaken of the heavenly calling. What we believe doesn't have to do with the ability to live another 10 years of life. Instead of living to be 70, 80. Instead of living to be 80, 90. We're not dealing with these kinds of matters. What we're dealing with has to do with the heavenly calling, which means it's eternal. It derives from heaven, comes down to earth, benefits us so that we might go to heaven and be with the Lord forever. It's a heavenly calling. It's spiritual. It's unseen. Therefore, it's more special. Because it's more special, it has impacted us, it has changed us and transformed us to stop living for the world and to live for heaven itself. This is who we are. He describes the benefits of who we are and what we have experienced. So because of this, he says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. After all, he's the one who accomplished it for us. And he's the one who awaits us. He's the one who will return. And when we, he returns, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. So we ought to consider Jesus. Consider him, not anybody else. He doesn't say, consider Moses. He doesn't say, consider David, Isaiah, Abraham. He doesn't say that. He's putting us on notice that he wants us to consider the supreme Savior, the supreme Lord. Jesus himself, not anybody else. Now, if he did not say, consider Moses, Isaiah, Abraham, or anyone else like that, then we shouldn't. We should not be distracted by anybody else, such as Abraham and Moses. Nor should we be distracted by anybody else, such as Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, anyone else, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Charles Taze Russell, Mary Baker Eddy, and all the other founders, or so-called founders, of false religions. We ought not to consider any of them. Only Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God and Son of Man. Only Him. He is the only means of salvation. For it says in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Isaiah chapter uh, 45, 22. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. For everyone who lives, the only means of salvation is Jesus. Therefore, he must be proclaimed. His word must be proclaimed. We must believe him and not be distracted and deceived by anyone else. Moreover, he says, consider Jesus. When he says consider, he does not mean, as we hear today sometimes, try Jesus. Why don't you check him out? Try Jesus. It might work for you if you try him. Nothing else has worked for you thus far in your life, so why don't you give him a chance? Just try him out. That's not what he means here when he says consider Jesus. He means it in a very serious manner. He means to consider, contemplate, reflect upon, meditate upon Jesus. The truths of Jesus, the words of Jesus, meditate and consider him in that way. Not flippantly, not casually, not as a matter of he's going to fix your problems and he's going to be a quick fix for whatever you need and want. Not like that. No, consider him in a very, very upright, circumspect, serious way. Consider his claims. Consider what he has done, what he says about himself, the eyewitness testimonies of the apostles in the New Testament, and even the prophets who for generations after generations predicted that he would come and do all these things. Consider him in that way, that he is a unique, divine Savior to save us from our sins. Then he gives him two titles in verse 1. He calls him the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Apostle or messenger. The apostle is the equivalent in the New Testament, the term for the prophets of the Old Testament. He's anticipating a comparison to Moses in this regard. Moses was like the New Testament apostles. In the Old Testament, they were called prophets. Both of them were messengers of God. They heard the word of God and they delivered the word of God to the people. That's the sense in which Jesus is an apostle. John chapter 5, and for that matter, throughout the book of John and 1 John, repeatedly, repeatedly, John the Apostle tells us that the Father sent the Son. Jesus says repeatedly, the Father sent me. He sent me. He sent me because he has the word of God for the people. So just as Moses was a prophet and heard the word, but even more, the greatest one, who knew the Word of God and who delivered the Word of God was Christ. John 12, Jesus speaks. John 12, 44 to 50. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak of myself, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This means 
that when he is called the apostle, that we have to consider everything Jesus said to be from God. Not his own opinion, not his religious musings, not some fanatic who's in the wilderness and who says that he was in a trance and some angel spoke to him. Nothing like that. But what Jesus spoke actually came from heaven, from God the Father, the Father who sent the Son to deliver the message of the truth to us. That's the way we ought to consider Jesus as our apostle. He came to deliver the pure, 100% pure word of God to us. Don't consider it the words of men, but the words of God. Then the second title, high priest. This reminds us of Aaron. Aaron, in the Old Covenant, in the Law of Moses, Aaron was established, and his family, his descendants, the males among them, they were established as the high priest in the lineage of Aaron. From the time of Moses, and even until the time of Christ, it was the descendants of Aaron who were the high priests. But there's also another high priest, the high priest of Melchizedek. In the time of Abraham in Genesis 14, he was called a priest of the Most High God. And Jesus has come and manifested himself as the perfect fulfillment of these priesthoods. Jesus is the fulfillment of these priesthoods, of Aaron and Melchizedek. Melchizedek will be further explained in chapters 5 and 10, and Jesus' fulfillment of that in those chapters of Hebrews. So what does a priest do? And what is it that Jesus has done for us? The high priest, he is a mediator, he is an intercessor, and he is the one who presents the offerings from the worshipers, from the common people, presents these offerings of animals and grain to God as sacrifice. This is what he does on behalf of the people. He is a mediator, he is the go-between between the people and God. He is in many ways for his ministry, and he is also that way for his prayers. He prays on behalf of the people to God, just as Samuel did. Samuel prayed on behalf of the people. Moses and Aaron, they prayed on behalf of the people. This is what the priest does. He prays on their behalf. And then he also offers a, a sacrifice, a sacrifice because of the sins of the people, to God. And Jesus does this in the perfect way. Jesus is the mediator, the only mediator, ultimately, for our salvation between God and men, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.5. He is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is our intercessor. He prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, correct? He prayed for us in John chapter 17, known as the high priestly prayer of Christ, a high priestly prayer because he prayed for us that God would preserve us and protect us that we might be with him and enjoy his glory forever. He prayed for us in that way. And then he is the superior sacrifice because he did not offer an animal to pay for our sins. He offered his own flesh and blood. He offered his own life on the cross to be a substitute so that we would not be punished and go to hell forever and ever. So that we would not be tormented forever and ever. He tasted death for us on the cross. He paid our penalty as a perfect sacrifice for sins. 
Further, this message of the apostleship and priesthood of Christ is related to our confession. Our confession. A confession has two basic elements. A confession has the actual confession, or we may say the profession. We say we believe it. So we must, if we say we believe it, we are identifying ourselves with the name of Christ. And if we do so, and we consider ourselves Christians, disciples, believers, then we have to live up to that. So that's a reminder that we cannot take God's name in vain. If we take God's name in vain, God will not hold us guiltless, whoever takes his name in vain. That's a part of the Ten Commandments. As well, the other aspect of a confession is the object of our confession, or the content of our confession. Who are we believing in? What are we believing in? We're believing in Christ. And if this is the case, we are believing in Christ, then we have to actually understand that, that confession, understand who He is, understand why He came into the world, understand how that relates to me, not just to people generally, but also to me, individually. We have to understand what is our confession of Christ and how does that apply to me or to us individually, as individuals, as persons who must hold ourselves accountable to God. Furthermore, verse 2, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. He says here that Christ was faithful to him, was faithful to the Father, just as Moses was faithful in the household of God. Moses was faithful, but Jesus was faithful as well. In a moment, he will tell us that he was more faithful more glorious, more uh, worthy of encomiums, praise, than Moses. In a moment, in verse 3, he will say, but first he establishes that both were faithful. Both of them did exactly what God instructed them to do. Let's see, for example, with Moses. Numbers chapter 12. In Numbers 12, we have Miriam and Aaron who approach Moses and confront Moses for a supposed sin in Moses. It was not a sin in Moses, but they lambasted him and accused him of doing wrong and in sinning. Well, God appears to them, and he appears in glory and he appears in judgment because he struck Miriam, who presumably was the leader of this group of antagonists against Moses, struck her with leprosy. And this is what God said about Moses and his faithfulness. Numbers 12, verse 6. He said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? God clearly declares that Moses is unique among the prophets, even above Miriam and Aaron, who also heard the word of God. And Miriam is actually called, in Exodus chapter 15, she's called a prophetess. 
So she also heard the word of God, and as a female prophet, delivered the word of God. In this case, though, God says that from ancient times, from Adam and Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, so forth, from ancient times till now, God has uniquely spoken to Moses, and Moses has received this praise from God. He is faithful in all my household. He is faithful in all my household. He was a, a, an extremely godly man. And God did not deliver his word to him in riddles, in dark visions, in obscure dreams. He didn't reveal himself that way. He revealed himself plainly and personally, mouth to mouth, openly to Moses. Moses was faithful in that way and received this kind of praise <coughs> from God and this kind of treatment from God. But what about Christ? Christ was too. He says, He was faithful to him who appointed him. We read earlier in John 12, 44 to 50, that Jesus declared this to be true. I have spoken whatever God told me. He has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. That's what I delivered to you. So you are held accountable to that. Now, if we consider that Jesus was perfect in all of his speech above Moses. Moses was perfect whenever he delivered the word, but otherwise he had sin in his life like we have sin. Jesus was perfect as the Son of God and faithful as the Son of God perfectly because he had a divine nature and a human nature. He was sinless completely, and his identity, he came from heaven to earth. Moses did not come from heaven to earth. He originated on the earth. But Jesus originated from heaven. He came from heaven to earth. So Jesus' faithfulness and his faithfulness to God is superior to Moses. Even though they both have elements of faithfulness, he's still showing that Jesus is superior to Moses. He further explains in verse 3, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses for the things that we just said, because the content of his words and actions were 100% perfect. Moses was not. Though he was faithful, he was not. And Moses' identity is inferior to Jesus' identity. But also another reason. He says in verses 3 and 4, Who receives more glory, the builder of the house or the house itself? Or the builder of the house or the household itself? Who receives more glory? We all know that the builder receives more glory. Therefore, if God is the builder of all things, that means God in Christ is the builder of all things, then shouldn't Christ receive more glory than Moses? Moses actually was a participant in the household of God. He also needed to be redeemed. He also needed to be adopted and brought into the family of God. He was alienated before he was adopted. He was a, a strange son, not a son of the family, he was an illegitimate son in terms of sin and rebellion before he became an adopted son in the family of God. 
So who's going to receive more honor? The builder. And the builder of all things is God. So if Christ is attached to God, as we saw in John chapter 5, and as we saw in John chapter 12, Jesus said repeatedly, He who honors the Son honors the Father who sent him. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So God is the builder of all things, and therefore God in Christ is superior and receives more praise and adoration than Moses. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We have already read the truthfulness of what is being asserted here, that Moses was faithful. We saw that from Numbers 12. We also notice from Numbers 12 that God called him his servant. He's my servant. He's faithful in all my household. That is repeated here. Verse 5. In all his house or household as a servant. Moses was receiving that praise, that honor of being called a servant, a faithful servant in the household of God. That is good. But notice in verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his house. He was a son over the household of God, not a servant. Yes, Jesus did serve, and he was obedient, but Moses was never called the Son of God, never called the only begotten Son of God, never possessed deity as the Son of God. John 5, 16 and 17 and 18 teach us that Jesus, when he called himself the Son, or identified the Father as my Father, uniquely my Father, the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming a unique identity, that he was the unique Son of God, separated from all of us who are adopted as sons of God. Separated because of who he is, his identity from heaven. So Jesus was a son and faithful. Moses was a servant and faithful. Moses never had this honorific title as being the Son of God over the household of God. So why put more glory on Moses than Christ? And why put more glory on anyone else than Christ? Only Christ. Furthermore, verse 5 tells us what Moses was all about. What Moses was all about. Moses was for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. He was a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. The people missed the point. The people missed the point. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. They searched the scriptures, but they didn't see the person of the scriptures. They didn't see the content of a true confession of faith. They didn't see Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. Moses spoke of Christ, and he spoke of what Christ would do, but they missed the whole point. They were looking straight at the noonday sun and calling it the moon. That's how blind they were to what actually was happening before them. They didn't see Christ. They saw 
the scriptures, they saw minutia, things that they did not need to focus on. They focused on speculation. They didn't see Christ. And verse 40, And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have a love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Now he tells them, your problem, basic problem is, you're trying to receive glory from men. And while you're trying to receive glory, praise, adoration from men, one man praising and flattering another man, you are losing focus because you should be receiving praise from God, not other men. Because you are so fixated on receiving glory from other men, you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. That's what Moses was teaching. Don't exalt men. Don't exalt himself, even. He was not exalting himself. He was exalting Christ. He was preaching Christ, which is what he says in John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Who is going to accuse the people, the unbelieving people, on the day of judgment? Moses. And Moses will say, according to Christ's words here, Moses will say to the people on the day of judgment, what is the matter with you? I kept on preaching Christ to you, and you didn't believe in Christ. So I'm accusing you of unbelief, because I told you clearly that this is all about Christ, and yet you made it about something else. You made it about another person. You made it about another thing. You made it about peace progeny and a pot belly. You did not want to glorify God in spiritual things and things related to Christ. You wanted to live for this world. And I kept telling you again and again and again not to live for this world, but to live for Christ. Moses is the one who will accuse you. And then he says, Moses wrote of me. Moses wrote of me. That's what Hebrews is teaching us too. Hebrews 3, 5. He was a testimony of the things that were to be spoken later. Moses preached Christ. For example, if we consider Deuteronomy chapter 18 and its quotation of certain verses in Acts chapter 3. Compare, for further study, Deuteronomy 18 to Acts chapter 3. We will read Acts 3 where the Apostle Peter applies Deuteronomy 18 as evidence that Moses spoke of Christ and that Christ would come and speak and tell us and fulfill things in Christ's spoken words of the things that Moses said Christ would speak. Remember, Moses is a testimony of the things that would be spoken later, later in Christ. Acts chapter 3, 322. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So who is this prophet that God will raise up? Verse 24, And likewise all the prophets have spoken 
from Samuel and his successors onward, also announced these days. All the prophets announced the days of Christ. 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. There we go. The Apostle Peter says that it is Jesus who was raised up by God. Verse 22 says, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. A prophet like Moses, but superior to Moses. Because whoever does not believe his words has no eternal life. Back to Hebrews 3, and now verse 6. Hebrews 3, verse 6. The last part of the verse says that Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. We are of Christ's house or household. We are a part of the family of God. We are a part of the building of God, the temple of God, if a condition is met. This says, we are this in truth, if a condition is met. It says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. If we hold fast, if we cling on to this confidence and hope, what we boast in, what we have our conviction in, if we hold firm to this until the end. Your Bible may not have firm until the end. However, it is implied. The New American Standard Bible says firm until the end because of the manuscripts. It says firm until the end. And yet we do know he is talking about firm until the end. For example, 3.14. 3.14 is a similar statement. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There there is no dispute in the manuscripts in verse 14. If we hold fast, firm until the end. That means, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, he who endures till the end shall be saved. He's telling us this because he's exhorting us to make sure we hold fast to Christ. Do not let go of Christ. Do not walk away from Christ. Do not apostatize. Do not fall away. Do not forsake him. Do not abandon him. Do not say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? That's what they did in John chapter 6. And therefore, many of his disciples withdrew from him and were not walking with him anymore. Then Jesus turns to his own twelve and says, you do not want to go away also, do you? And then Peter speaks up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And Jesus says, have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So of the great multitude of people, the 5,000, who followed him because they, their bellies were filled with fish and bread. Their bellies were filled, they followed him, and then Jesus preached the hard message to them, and they did not hold fast to it. In fact, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Uh, my ears can't tolerate it. My mind can't tolerate it. I can't listen to this anymore. I'm going to walk away from it, is what they did. And they showed themselves to be false disciples, bogus believers. 
They did not have true faith. Because he says here, as Jesus teaches us in John 6, that if we hold fast our confidence, we said we believe, we said we have confidence, but we have to hold fast to it. Because it could be a charade. It could be a false confidence. We just might blurt something in the emotion of the moment, but not really mean it. But we have to maintain this confidence and this boast, this boast of our hope firm until the end. He has given us a hope of eternal life. He has given us a hope of better days, of all eternity, the days of eternity. He has given us all of this and assured us that our faith in Christ is the means of our being grafted into Christ, of us being belonging to the family of God. That is the means, so we must endure. He's about to tell us in the remainder of chapter 3 and in chapter 4 that there were many, many people in the days of Moses who would not hold fast. Whenever there was trials, when afflictions and persecutions, uncertainties, what's going to happen when we go into battle? When these kinds of things happened to them, and they were demoralized, and when they walked away, and when they complained, and when they attacked Moses and Aaron, and even at one point were about to stone Moses to death. When they did things like this, these are evidences of people who truly don't believe, who do not hold fast and firm until the end. But we must be different. We must hold fast until the end. Let's not put any individual or anything in front of us so that Christ is removed from front and center in our life. Only Christ, by the word of Christ, should be supreme in our life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.